Welcome third year students. This is the last content podcast for the uh, research module for media practice in third year. And what that means is that we're going to cover the last theories that uh, are important for understanding crime and violence in South Africa. And these theories pertain specifically to gender-based violence. We have touched on some of it in class already, and um, in the upcoming lecture, we will cover it again. But for those who are accessing this after that lecture, um, or who are preparing for their assessments, this is an important recap for thinking about gender-based violence in South Africa. Now, it's very important that we start with talking about and thinking about gender-based violence from the position of being very aware of the statistics around gender-based violence, that this is a substantial and significant issue in the South African context. South Africa, as I've said before, is the rape capital of the world. And that is not something that we can take lightly, that we need to think very seriously about what that means and how we can uh, address that because it's got very, very important consequences for individual lives, for women who have, or men who have been raped and the, the ways that that trauma persists throughout their lives means that it has impacts on things like what kinds of work that they're able to do, how they can raise their own families, um, how they can uh, contribute into society, um, but also just for their personal well-being. So if, if you have a large proportion of the population who are being systematically violated, you're going to have a society that is going to be stunted in some kinds of ways because people are trying to recover and to heal from trauma. And... This, when you look at the statistics around rape, when you look at the statistics of gender-based violence, is the majority of women in the country are being affected in some way by harassment or violence. So these are, are deep and important issues. And while there has been an increasing focus on gender-based violence in recent years, in certainly in terms of the media, there continues to be very poor uh, rates of um, getting people, perpetrators, uh, found guilty on crimes of gender-based violence. And there still persists within society a lot of problematic ways of thinking about women and gender. And we'll talk about the myths around, uh, around uh, gender-based violence as well as victim blaming in a second. But... These issues that we continue, continuously see in society around how gender is being understood and the ways that uh, gender-based violence is being experienced are the kinds of things that we want to address. So what we are doing, similar to what we have done in the rest of the course, is to continue to make perpetrators of violence uh, responsible for, the, for their actions but we're trying to understand the bigger issues that underpin those violent, violent acts 
um, and that allow for so much violence to happen in the South African society and for so much violence against women. Now, what I want to focus on is the ways that South Africans talk about and think about gender and the ways that we talk about and think about violence in relation to to gender-based violence. So that it's not just about what we do, it's also about how we talk about and think about violence. And for that reason, when I talk about gender-based violence, I'm talking about this as a collective problem and not just about uh, men. Uh, and maybe we want to talk in a moment about uh, the hashtag men are trash and what that means and, and how it works. But um, I'm not just talking about men as being uh, the problem. Certainly, most instances of gender-based violence are by men uh, on women. But there are also other kinds of gender-based violence. There is uh, against people of different sexualities. Um, so you've got the corrective rape that happens uh, with lesbians. You have um, gay bashing. There are other kinds of, of gender-based violence that maybe happen against uh, young boys. Um, and we see quite a lot of that. And so gender-based violence doesn't belong to just one person or one group of people. It, in fact, belongs to all of us. And because it belongs to all of us, it's for all of us to fix. And it's a part of what we need to think about and talk about when we think about parenting, when we think about uh, community engagements, when we think about the media, when we think about education, that all of these spaces, when we think about legal structures, when we think about um, policing, all of these things play into the, the ways that gender-based violence is actually tolerated in South African life. I saw a video recently, and um, it was just this weekend, and that's sort of the 18th, 19th of July, where there was a policeman uh, beating up his colleague, a female colleague, in front of laughing, other laughing police folk who were recording it. And um, I think that if our police are thinking that violence against women is funny, that it's that it's perfectly fine for a police police per, a policeman in this case, a policeman, um, to beat up another policewoman uh, in front of other law enforcing officers. That it's no surprise then that people in society, in communities around the country, think that violence against women is acceptable. I, I know that in our last lecture we watched uh, Once Were Warriors, which is an incredibly powerful movie for thinking about gender-based violence. And in the afternoon group somebody asked if this was exaggerated. And while certainly it's not a true story, it's a fictional story, and uh, therefore it has all of the elements of a movie as opposed to a documentary. 
I then went home afterwards and, and started to pick up reports in the media, uh, one of which was a trauma nurse talking about what a, an average week weekend um, in the trauma unit was like. And she would have, you know, old women being stabbed by uh, young men. She would have women who would come in who have you know, in air quotes, fallen down the stairs, women who've been um, thrown against a wall. And so while, while we want to maybe think that that movie was sensationalized, the reality for women is, is that those experiences are actually happening. So being being hit in the face, being slammed against a wall, being... Uh, raped by your partner, being raped by your uncle. All of those are actually real lived experiences for many people and certainly for many people in South Africa. So while it is hard to watch, it's it's hard not because it's untrue. It's hard because it tells us something about what we maybe already know is out there. Okay, so... Um, I'll get to hashtag uh, men are trash when we get to rape culture because I know that that's something that sparks a lot of conversation and a lot of debate. But I, what I want to, to move through first is the, the theories that precede thinking about that. So we're going to start with victim blaming. Um, this one actually is, is embedded in rape culture, but it's one that I want to spend uh, a little bit of time on. Then we're going to talk about masculinity and patriarchy um, in relation to uh, in relation to society broadly, but also in relation to initiations and to other kinds of aggression, humiliation, and shame. And then lastly, we'll go on to rape culture. So the first one is victim blaming, um, and like all the theories we've covered in, in the course so far, it is best encapsulated by its own name. So it's about blaming the victim. And this happens uh, throughout our engagement with with gender-based violence, that, that people tend to want to call on women, particularly, or the victim, whoever the victim may be, to protect themselves. And if they don't, then, then they are to blame. So it's, it's asking why she was wearing a short skirt, why she was drinking, why, um, why uh, anything, why, why she was out late, why she had had sex with the person previously, why... Um, <coughs> sorry, I've got a bit of a cough, which may be why... Um, I may not be in class for a while. Um, so all of those questions that we that we have of the victim uh, actually distract us from the real causes of the violence. So, for example, why was she drinking? It's very in interesting to ask why a victim was drinking and never to ask why a perpetrator was drinking. Because often, um, as we've seen uh, recently in South Africa, alcohol intake is related to violent behavior in many kinds of ways. So, um, and definitely to gender-based violence. So 
the the fact that victims are drinking should be less interesting to us than the than the the fact that uh, perpetrators are drinking, and yet we don't seem to ask those questions. And this this idea of victim blaming penetrates so much of our engagement with um, women and men when violence happens. So it comes out when women go to seek for help, when they go to the police station, when they go to the clinics, when they go to the hospitals. There tends to be this attitude of, what did you do to cause this? Did you make him angry? Did you deny him sex? Um, and not a real clear understanding from these places that uh, of, of consent. And again, we must talk about consent. I know that we've covered it in class, but I, will, I want to touch on it on the um, podcast as well. So victim blaming is, is pervasive in those uh, helping institutions, but it's also pervasive in the legal structure. So for those who continue to read uh, the rape book, you will see that um, the one chapter is on the Zuma trial and the ways in which the lawyers and the judges involved uh, were interested in the sexual history of the victim. And all of these kinds of structures that, that victim blame are turning our attention away from what are the causes of violence, who is involved in violence, um, and, and focusing us on a, a model that doesn't actually allow us to really fix the issue of rape. Because whether a, a, a woman wears a short skirt or not actually is, is not really relevant because we know that the victims of rape are not only women who wear short skirts. We know that, that rape is happening with elderly women who are very modestly dressed, we know that, that rape is happening with children in diapers. So this is not about sexual uh, promiscuity on the part of women. And this is not about being um, available or whatever the, the sort of idea, and I'm using air quotes again, the idea of uh, when a woman uh, is uh, making themselves attractive to men and then saying no, right? So whatever those ideas are that sort of permeate society, that those are actually not linked in any way to what the causes of rape are. The causes of rape are not short skirts. The causes of rape is not women drinking to excess. The cause of rape is not women having multiple sexual partners. The cause of rape is with the the perpetrator. It's it's often in our context linked to alcohol, but it's also linked to what we're going to come to next: masculinity and patriarchy, to power, um, to dominant forms of thinking about uh, gender, um, and those are things that we need to then tackle. So I wanted to just uh, come back to consent. Um, because consent is an issue that in South Africa gets 
often forgotten when we're talking about sexuality. And I think because much of the country is quite conservative and uh, wants to uh, protect women uh, in the sort of ironic kind of way, that when, when we're growing up and we're learning about sex and sexuality for the first time, we won't it won't be common to also be talking about consent when women hear about sexuality uh when they are in puberty they probably are hearing about it from their peers and they probably are are only hearing about the version of sexuality that is quite heteronormative it's about heterosexual sex and it's uh it's usually about uh reproduction so it's usually about the the ways in which a woman's body is uh, is going to produce children so the issues of of desire of uh, relationships of of trust of negotiating condoms of uh, of actually enjoying sexuality and um, and being safe and happy within your sexual life, those are very seldomly encountered for young people when they are talking about consent. And even in adulthood, I'm fairly certain that those are not things that come up in regular conversation. Maybe in, you know, like with a, a trusted group of friends, but but not things that fo- are focused on in the media, not things that are focused on in... Um, in regular discourse, in the media, with um, with educational experts, or yeah, or discussed in any kind of formal way. So consent seems to then fall away from our conversation, and yet it's so important in a country where non-consensual encounters are happening. And I'm and I say non-consensual very tentatively because non-consensual sex is rape and so we shouldn't talk about it in non as non-consensual we should just say there's consensual sex and then there's rape those are those are the two kinds of sex that exist and so we we want to to engage with what consensual sex looks like and most people um will be squeamish even of of consensual sex. So we saw in the movie that one of the, the very early scenes of Once was Once Were Warriors was an encounter with the two protagonists, um, the mother and the father figure, and they are happily enjoying each other's company. And I, I notice every year how squeamish everybody is about that scene as if they've never seen a couple or been a part of a couple where they've been kissing and and enjoying each other. So, and yet I know that that's probably not true. I think that the, the, the reason that there's that discomfort is because they've never seen it on TV. They've never seen it in spaces where, um, where it can be legitimated. So that discomfort says that 
says to me that, that talking about engaging with sexuality is something that we don't ordinarily do. We don't ordinarily uh, engage with talking about our own bodies and our own desires and what um, what co- counts as good encounters. And we really do need to because consent is so, so crucial. As I mentioned in our last class that what doesn't count as, as, as cons- consent is begging her for hours, chasing her around the room. If she's just laying there be- for whatever reason, because she's intoxicated or, or because um, she, she feels bullied into it or um, because you've kind of forced her down and she can't really run away, right? Those are, those are not consensual encounters, so it's not only when she says no or not only when she fights back that it that counts as non-consent. We need to to understand that that consent is an informed enthusiastic response that the person is actively participating in that encounter with us and um willingly and and enthusiastically actively returning the engagement, right? That they're not just passive. They're not just. They're not just laying there because that's what's expected. So, th- those kinds of conversations are ones that we, we I think need to open up in society to to think about and talk about sexuality. And this speaks to the ideas of masculinity and patriarchy, which are collective ideas, collective ideologies even, that shape the ways that the genders are understood. And the reason I bring this up in relation to consent is that what we think of as, as gender... Um, is so heavily influenced by society and the society that we've grown up with and the ideas that permeate within society that it's not only enough to talk about masculinity and femininity and um, and the and sexuality without also acknowledging the ways that that those experiences are shaped by our society. So while our bodies matter, and I'm reminded of this constantly in class, while our bodies matter, they absolutely do because we are born with particular kinds of bodies. They shape who we can think of ourselves as. They shape um, our internal experiences. There's hormones and a whole range of things involved. What also matters and what we want to also think about is how that body is then also shaped by what the collective society thinks about us. And this is the ideas embedded in masculinity and patriarchy. So I've spoken in class about the differences between sex, gender and sexuality. Sex being the body that you're born with whether you have a vagina or a penis or both. Gender being the constructs that make us behave in certain ways, so whether we 
play with dolls or cars when we're growing up or whether we um, wear pink or blue, whether we think of ourselves as having to be nurturing or protective, right? All of these ideas and, and many, many more are fundamentals to thinking about what gender is. And then, of course, sexuality is who we're att attracted to. And we fit in relation to these things in various ways so that we don't have to be born with a penis, exhibit masculine behavior, and like girls. Right? That's the traditional heterosexual uh, understanding of masculinity. But in fact, there are many kinds of, of different experiences. You can be born with um, a penis, but be much more soft and gentle and still like girls. But but you, your behavior is, is different to what the traditional form of masculinity is. Or you could be quite aggressive and then but but like guys as a as a person born with a penis. So um there are so many versions of how to exhibit behavior both as men and as women that is shaped by our bodies in relation to what society uh determines is the the sort of correct form that are, we should uh, ex express ourselves. So for men, there's a lot of pressure to be that strong, aggressive, protective kind of, of person. And, and in fact, uh, for many young boys, their experiences of growing into men through uh, processes of initiation and, and shame and humiliation is to shape them into those kinds of men. So whether they were born like that or not, certain, they certainly become like that through these processes. So for example, initiation, and I'm not just talking about cultural forms of initiation, I mean initiation in many senses, uh, school initiations, um, initiations into certain kinds of uh, clubs, um, initiation into masculinity really, um, in its broadest sense, that, that that comes with violence. So toxic masculinity is the form of masculinity that um, is the most troublesome. Obviously, it's called toxic masculinity for a reason. There are other kinds of masculinity. So this is where perhaps we should detour onto hashtag men are trash, is that... Men are trash presumes that all men are the same. Um, that's not the intention. I think the, the intention of, of, of hashtag men are trash was to say that violence and toxic masculinity are so common, so commonly a feature of masculinity and what it is to be a man in South Africa that it becomes a feature of the category. So it would be like saying... Dogs bark, right? Yes, there are some dogs that do not bark, but barking is such a common feature of, of being a dog that you're not wrong to say dogs bark. It's the same thing with, with masculinity. When you say men are trash, you're not saying all men are trash, although it, I'll get to why I say it presumes that. 
Um, but you're saying that it's such a common feature of masculinity, masculinity that um, to be toxic, that we can then make a claim that men are trash. Now, I, I, I think that what it, that does is it, it creates these uh, antagonisms in society around masculinity that are not helpful because then men feel like they are solely responsible for for violence in society and um and while men certainly must come to the table in terms of being allies for women and challenging their peers around toxic masculinity in order to to instead of saying i'm not one of of the you know the men are trash you know to actually show i'm not i'm not one um but nonetheless the the idea of toxic masculinity is one that does pervade much of the experience of masculinity but there are other kinds of masculinity out there and there are allies and there are um more uh nurturing and healing kinds of masculinity they just ha- tend to be much smaller pockets within society and ones that we want to pull out, address and engage with. But when we're talking about toxic masculinity, we must um, think about where this is coming from. And it's coming from a system in which young boys are being violated. So they are being policed into behaving in certain kinds of ways and we see this when we when we see that that boys have to be strong they're told be a man we see this when when boys are given a lot more uh, punishments uh, physical punishments in childhood to control their behavior we see this when they're told that they're not allowed to cry we see this in the ways that they um, are being told that they, they're not a good enough man if, right? This sort of emasculation of men, that you're only a good man when, when you can, uh, you know, be strong and aggressive and not be um, a victim to uh, other people. All of these things, the suppressed emotions, the initiations, the violence, the emasculation, all of these things lead to men who are adults who are in support of violence as ways to engage with other people. That they've experienced a lot of violence, that they've had to effectively change who they are to become the kinds of good men that society wants them to be. And so they they believe then that in order to to make people around them good, they need to exhibit that that, that kind of masculinity, that kind of hardened, uh, aggressive masculinity, um, but also to use violence to get what they want. So these kinds of things happen particularly with, with young children, and it, and it comes in the form of extreme aggression, uh, a lot of humiliation and shame on young boys who have to perform their masculinity in this very narrowly defined way. 
And who is doing this work against young boys? It is older boys, certainly, but it's also uh, women, uh, mothers, aunties, uh, grannies, who are determined to make their men strong and, uh, and powerful. So the kinds of experiences that young boys are having that are making them into these toxic men is not only about uh, what men are doing. It's also about how all of us in society are shaping men to be certain kinds of, of adults. And this connects very much into then into rape culture. So rape culture is, is fundamentally the ways that we talk about men um, and sexuality and rape in the context. In, in Pumla's book, in the rape book, she has a number of rape myths that she looks at. Um, so she looks at things like uh, perpetrators are monsters who are abusive all of the time. Rape is inappropriate sex. There's a proper way to respond to being raped. Rape myths are just harmless ignorance. Real rape victims or survivors lay charges with the police because they have nothing to lose. Rape is about male arousal and the need to have sex. Rapists are strangers who abduct women uh, in public and rape them in unknown places. Sex workers cannot be raped. Women are accidentally raped because they play hard to get. Rape looks a certain way. Right? These are the ones that, that uh, Pamela has pulled out. But there are others as well. And these underpin what we're talking about when we talk about rape culture. It's the ways that we think about um, rape, the ways that we think about sexuality, the ways that we think about men and women that allows for certain kinds of things in society. So because we say things like dressing in a certain way or being visibly drunk invites rape, which actually is the one I missed of, of Pomla's, um, that's uh, embedded in what we've already spoken about in terms of victim blaming. But it then means that if a woman is dressed a certain way, there's a sense that, that she's inviting sexuality, that she is complicit, so there, then she's consenting, even if she's not actively participating, even if she's not enthusiastic, even if she's not saying yes, if she's actually saying no, we take it that what she's wearing means that she's saying yes, right? Which is an, obviously a problematic way to think about things. But that is how many South Africans relate to uh, these issues. So um, from this perspective, rape is acceptable. And the moment that in, South, in, in any community, but in South Africa where this happens all the time, and whenever we start to excuse violent behavior, when we start to excuse rape, then we are opening the door for that to, to be uh, accepted and allowed in society. And so what this does is this moves us away from thinking about the, the kinds of issues around gender, the kinds of issues around power that actually underpin 
experiences of rape. Now, Pumla has done some work, and I definitely encourage you to read the whole book. Thinking about the history of violence in South Africa, thinking about the ways that masculinity has been understood in the context, thinking about um, power and the, the, the need to, to dominate that's a, a part of the, the idea of what masculinity is. Um, and she even goes as far to, as to talk about rape, I mean race, in relation to rape, because the, the history of violence in this country, as I've already mentioned, is allowing for, for certain kinds of um, engagements in the context. So we've spoken a lot about how the history of violence in South Africa has set up the groundwork for the other kinds of violence that we've spoken about. And that's no different when it comes to, to rape, that if, if you live in a society, if we think about frustration, I mean, an authoritarian personality, we think if we live in a society where the nature of power is to dominate over other people and to be violent towards them, then we are creating this microcosm in which individuals then feel the need to have power in order to be able to assert their will over other people. Um, so whether that's a sexual will in relation to rape or another kind of will in relation to other experiences, violence emanates from a society in which power is equated to violence. So that's very much true even of gender. So gender is... Um, in many ways, no difference to the other kinds of violence and aggression that we're seeing in society. It's linked to childhood issues. It's linked to the ways that we think about and engage with what violence is and what is permissible. And it's linked to a whole set of uh, histories and culture that tolerate certain kinds of violence. And obviously, when we talk about rape culture, this is a broad, this is a broad communal culture that belongs to all South Africans. And rape certainly happens in all communities uh, around South Africa. So there's no sense that this belongs to any one particular group. Although we um, we must accept that um, it does intersect, obviously, with a couple of other variables, things like poverty. Um, alcoholism, unemployment, all of these kinds of things play a role as well. So trying to make sense of these complicated dynamics, what is, what is true in all of the spaces that we see rape happening is these beliefs about what men and women should be like and the ways that power is being organized that we need to tackle and make sense of. And I, in my, um, in my course notes, in, sorry, in my course notes in the, the final uh, number seven, the final lecture number seven, I've got a couple of tweets from somebody who is interested in consent 
and they say nicely what I want to maybe end this session with, which is, so this is Nafisa Ahmed uh, tweeting about consent, and she says, I don't get how rape is so hard to understand for some men, but if you put it like this, they get it. If you ask me for $5, let me say 50 rand, right? I'll just translate that. If you ask me for 50 rand and I'm too drunk to say yes or no, it's not okay to then go and take 50 rand out of my purse just because I didn't say no. Right? She continues. If you put a gun to my head and get me to give you 50 rand, you still stole 50 rand, even if I physically handed it to you. If I let you borrow 50 rand, that doesn't give you the right for your friend to take 50 rand out of my purse. But you gave him some, why can't I? Doesn't work. If you steal 50 rand and I can't prove it in court, that does not mean you didn't steal 50 rand. Just because I gave you 50 rand in the past doesn't mean that I have to give you 50 rand in the future. And to think, a man said, while she sat on his lap and went to his house, okay, if I asked you to hold my purse, does it mean you can take 50 rand? Right. So all of these thinking about consent and the ways in which when, when it comes to money, we can understand some of the dynamics around consent. But we can't seem to understand that when it comes to women, that a woman's previous sexuality or their uh, uh, intoxication or the, the kinds of coercion that you, you may um, use don't mean that she is consenting to having sex, right? That she, she in fact, continues to, to have the rights to her body regardless um, and I think perhaps that's where we should leave it, is that women have the rights to their bodies and that ultimately they decide whether they are going to um, have sex or not. And it's not enough that a woman has turned somebody on. Um, I think that my understandings of sexuality in the context is that if you've, if you've turned a man on, that's enough for a man. It does not matter whether you actually want to turn them on or whether you want to pursue any kind of sexual engagement because for him, if he's turned on, that's the, that's the end of the question. And I see this on the street all the time, that women are walking past men. They're not looking at the men. They're not doing anything particularly uh, special to draw their attention they often are modestly dressed, so it's not about what they're wearing. And because the man has turned their head, suddenly there's now this, this encounter between them. The men are catcalling, um, demanding that their, their reaction uh, draw, draw a response from the woman. And the women are like, I'm just trying to catch my taxi. Um, so... Because that man has seen something that he likes, he feels he is owed something. And that's the big issue, is 
that we need to get that we need to get past is that that men are not owed anything by women that women don't their bodies are not there for the pleasure of men um and that is fundamentally what rape culture is is that society has decided to support the idea that women need to entertain and look after men in all ways including in sec- in relation to sex and um and that if they don't that they are um that they're at fault for not providing that kind of support for men um rather than actually men are taking what isn't theirs so please let me know if you have any questions about uh, gender based violence those are the key concepts that we're focusing on it's masculinity and patriarchy it's victim blaming and it's rape culture and um make sure that you're reading the rape book to get a sense of of what these issues are because they are ones that are very important for thinking about very very real issues around gender based violence in the context cheers